Hi, folks. We're so glad you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you haven't yet, remember to follow this podcast on your podcatcher of choice, like Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have time, please leave us a review. It helps other listeners find us, and we read them for your feedback. You can also reach out to us on Instagram and Twitter at Our Body Politic. We're here for you, with you, and because of you. So keep letting us know what's on your mind. We'd also love for you to join in financially supporting the show if you're able. You can find out more at ourbodypolitik.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. This is Our Body Politic. I'm guest host Celeste Headley, journalist and best-selling author, sitting in for Farai Chidea. Black musicians have been a powerful and often unrecognized force in the classical music canon. On our show, we're talking with some of today's leading artists about their work and what it'll take for BIPOC musicians to finally be heard by everyone. But first, what makes classical music classical? Is it a powerful crescendo or complicated scale structure? Or is it something else? We speak with Philip Ewell, professor of music theory at Hunter College of the City University of New York, and author of On Music Theory and Making Music More Welcoming for Everyone. Welcome to the show, Professor Ewell. Thanks for having me, Celeste. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. So can we start by asking, what does classical mean? And I'm not trying to be snarky about this, but genres, they seem to be a little bit tricky, right? I mean, there's argument over what opera means. There's argument over what is jazz versus what is classical. What is classical music? Yeah, that's a tough one, Celeste. It's, of course, different things in different traditions. So in Iran, for instance, in India, they have classical music traditions, and they use the word classical, I mean, at least in English translation. So in that very broad sense, I think classical music would just be what is sometimes called highbrow music, sophisticated music. And in a European sense, classical music, of course, would feature, as you know, composers like Mozart, Beethoven, and Bach, etc. But classical music is a very, very broad topic. It's a very difficult thing to pin down. There's always been a racial aspect to that label of classical. Yep. It was used to sort of exclude groups of people. And I mean, I know this from my own family history that it was used to separate people who were considered to be educated from those who were not educated and people who were natural talents, tabula rasas, versus those who were steeped in history and came from the traditions of Johann Sebastian Bach and Beethoven, etc., etc. Those were classical musicians who knew their craft versus somebody like Duke Ellington, who was talented, but only knew popular music. And so to a certain extent, those who were black and brown could be listened to in a jazz club, but there would have been quite a scandal if they were brought to Carnegie Hall. And there was a scandal when they appeared Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. Carnegie Hall. Do you think there's still that sense to that word classical? I think yes. I think to a large extent, yes. Here I would cite my friend and colleague, Kira Thurman, and her wonderful book, Singing Like Germans, where she unpacks a lot of classical music, especially the Africans who traveled to Germany to study and how they were perceived there, how they were received there. And just generally the 
idea that the dissonance that it causes in a white framework to see a black pianist like Hazel Harrington, for instance, the first black to play with the Berlin Philharmonic, there is a cognitive dissonance for the audience. Why is that? Because it's representative of whiteness, and let's just say it plainly, of white supremacy. But I hasten to point out often that you have to go back not far in U.S. history, 80, 90 years. And the reason why white composers like Mozart and Bach were were better, it's because of their whiteness. And the white men who promoted those composers said so out just explicitly. John Powell, Percy Granger, Carl Ruggles, a long list of musicians in this country, Howard Hansen, George Eastman, Carl Seashore, all white men who would not have shied away for a second to talk about the inferiority of blackness, the superiority of whiteness, and how and why we need to keep Bach, Mozart, and Beethoven up on their hallowed hilltop because this is, quote-unquote, the best music of the world, even though it represents, I often say, not even 0.1% of the world's music. However, if you believe deeply in two things, white supremacy and patriarchy, if you believe those two things, you can claim that Beethoven and Brahms were the two best composers who ever wrote music on planet Earth. I don't believe that. I just think that they were really quite interesting composers, actually. You are a professor of music theory, and I thought of music theory the way that mathematicians, I assume, think about math. And it's almost as though I had this realization that it had been racialized and genderized the same way that people look at algorithms and realized <laughs> that there were humans behind that, too. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Like, these aren't objective rules. No. They should be. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that practically they, they actually can be. In fact, I don't even think they practically can be for math. And I speak with a little experience here. My dad was a number theorist, a mathematician, he has a PhD from UCLA, and I myself was this very annoying math whiz growing up. I won't get into that. <laughs> but it's true that there are a lot of people who try to tie math and music together and say, this just it's just objective. It's just what came down to us. We, we really are only interpreting. We're just revealing the truth. But then you're absolutely right, Celeste. People finally woke up to the fact that, well, hang on. <laughs> we use the word Europe and European to describe classical music often, when in fact, we're talking about Germany, France, and Italy. And that's it. And we're not even talking about the complete countries. We're talking about Vienna and Berlin and Paris and Venice. Well, we're barely talking about Rome, actually. Uh, so just think about that. We're talking about 1% to 2% of the European continent, literally. And we call it European music. We call it classical music. And I actually just blatantly say, bluntly, I should say, I call it white music, because that's the mythology that's been attached to classical music in the United States. And we should call it that because that's the way it was conceived. And we should also call it male because that's the way it was conceived. And then we should allow our students to mull over all of these things as they wend their way through our systems of music education. You have talked about how explicit this becomes. John Powell was at one point one of the most famous composers in the United States, and he was a blatant link between white supremacy and classical music. Can you talk about that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He he studied piano in Vienna, by the way, turn of the century. So he went went to the homeland. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> you know, when you know the work of John Powell, who was literally one of the authors of the Racial Integrity Act in Virginia in 1924 which gave us the quote-unquote one-drop rule, which meant that if you had one drop of Negro blood, you were 
quote-unquote colored. So obviously you, Celeste, and I were both colored people because we both have one, at, yeah, at least one. I have way more than a drop. Well, I got a couple of drops <laughs> in me. <laughs> but he was very important. And he wrote this piece called the Negro Rhapsody. So Rhapsody Negra, it's, it's either French or in Italian. And he essentially profited off of blackness because, oh, I'm going to use some black musical genres in this symphony. Whereas behind the scenes, he was a hardcore white supremacist of, you know, exactly 100 years ago. And he was really into promoting bluegrass and Appalachian music as a great American music, completely oblivious to the fact that the banjo is an African instrument. <laughs> so he was extremely influential. Can you separate the music from this history? I mean, in other words, can you separate Wagner from the way it was sometimes used in Nazi circles? Can you separate Jan Powell from his white supremacy? Can you separate the musician from their beliefs? Can we separate the art from, from what are sometimes called monstrous men, or as I like to call them, men? <laughs> 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 so can we separate it? Actually, I I find it extremely hard to separate. Me too. To to actually do that. So I, I don't know the answer to that question. I think the best way I could answer it is through the words of my colleague Will Ching, who teaches at Dartmouth. He wrote a great piece for the Chronicle of Higher Education: Why I Still Teach R. Kelly and Michael Jackson to My Students, and I do it because I want them to realize that we can be influenced by these people, and we can fall under their spell even, and we can't allow ourselves to be so invested in any one name. Like, for example, in music theory, there are many people who became too invested in Heinrich Schenker as a figure, as a, as a person, and they deified him, and they put him on this inscrutable place that he, sh he never should have been there, right? So, I think that there is a worth still to engaging with the, with the work of these people. Sometimes the work is very beautiful, but we have to always keep in mind what they were outside, because that's part of who they were, too, and that's part of who their art is as well. So let me ask you one more question before we end. And Heinrich Schenker is a great way into this. Heinrich Schenker, for our listeners, was incredibly important to music theory, uh, kind Indeed. of seminal music theorist. Mm -hmm. Almost every still musician at some point learns <laughs> about Heinrich Schenker, a famous anti-Semite. Yep. He who himself was Jewish. Yes. And my grandfather was shut out of doors his entire life because of his color. He was insulted and lost income. Troubled Island, Troubled Island was, was closed, was closed because, because he and Langston Hughes, yeah. after six days of standing ovations yes, yeah. because of his color. 1949, yep. And let me ask you the question that I was too young when he passed away to ask him. Hmm. Why keep doing this hmm. in this industry that doesn't want us? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really tough one, Celeste. I do often think to myself that sometimes blackness and music theory, for example, it's kind of an oil and water situation. It's just not, they're not compatible. Still, I'm not saying that they never can be, but despite the fact that there are quite legitimate attempts to, you know, alleviate that incompatibility. They exist, people out there are doing really great things, but it's still just the dismissiveness of the anti-blackness, the just the interminable, out-of-hand denigration, which is still there, 
when academic music deals with blackness, it kind of is a very, it, I am pessimistic at times, I have to be honest. But the optimism happens when I think of the hundreds and yes, thousands of younger scholars, and I see how eagerly they want to make these changes and how they're pressuring the power structures, then I have a great deal of optimism because I can see and I can hear and I know that there are people out there who want to make these changes. Dr. Philip Ewell, Professor of Music Theory at Hunter College of the City University of New York, thank you so much for joining us. Celeste, thanks for having me. This was fun. Classical music has long overlooked or ignored the work of non-white and female composers. But the new wave of academics and performers is hoping to bring the music of BIPOC artists to the stage and into the classrooms of universities and conservatories. One of those academics is Hunter College professor and award-winning harpist Ashley Jackson, who says her doctoral research into the legendary Black female composer Margaret Bonds became a pivotal point in her development as an artist. And her debut solo album, Ananga, which we're listening to right now, highlights the diversity of American music and the artistry of Black composers. I should also mention that piece we're hearing was composed by my grandfather. William Grant Still. Ashley Jackson joins me now. Ashley, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Celeste. So let's start with you and your instrument, because you play the harp, which could not be more associated with traditional classical music, right? Yet you have used this instrument to blur the lines between genres of music, to blur those lines between contemporary music, classical music, even Negro spirituals. What drew you to doing this? Sure, Celeste. Especially during my doctoral studies at Juilliard, I started thinking a lot about what I like to call my musical DNA, really just the music that I come from, the music that I listened to growing up. And as I got out of being a student and into the real world of professorships and performing, it also got me thinking about the history of the instrument. And harp is actually one of the oldest instruments in the world with roots in Africa. So for me, that's where the story begins. And when you think about that, it then opens up a possibility for blending genres, for exploring new types of textures. If you think about where this instrument comes from, tapping into those particularly West African roots just makes sense. And yet I wonder what that was experience was like for you studying the harp, because I can't imagine that a lot of the music, you know, what's considered to be the standard repertoire for harp is not usually African music. You know, they're not basing it on the Ananga, the African harp, right? They're basing it on what's generally written by white male European composers. Sure. And so for really all of my time as a student undergrad through my doctoral studies, I really felt like I was living in two different musical worlds. I had the music that I studied in conservatories and the music that I loved. You know, I loved studying Bach. I loved studying Debussy. But I also had the music that I grew up listening to, jazz, soul music, and gospel. As I got more focused in my career, I just always looked for ways to meld those two worlds together because music, all music, speaks to all of us and, and taps on all emotions that we all feel. So regardless of the genre, I think music has the ability to move. And so that's what encourages me to just keep opening up the repertoire and expanding what our definition of classical music. 
How do you address this racial, white racial framework, especially with your students, those who don't understand what European classical music owes to other parts of the world? Since I've been teaching at Hunter specifically, I've been fortunate to teach a variety of courses. So I've taught chamber music, um, but I've also taught large intro music history classes. And particularly in those, my students are predominantly non-majors. That's actually an opportunity for me to perhaps flip the script. And so what I'll do is at the beginning of those semesters, I'll ask them, what's the first word that they think of when they hear classical music? Because that just kind of lets me know where I have to start and what I have to break down. And with those responses, I challenged myself to make sure that with every lesson, every time I showed up in the classroom, I was not only presenting, quote unquote, the standards, but alongside the music of Margaret Bonds, alongside the music from the civil rights movement, because we can learn just as much about music history and history from those composers, as well as as the ones who've been deemed the standard You wrote a a really great piece for PBS that was called Envisioning an Anti-Racist Future in Classical Music. And you talked about an exercise you use with first-year students when you begin to talk about opera. Can you tell us a little bit about that exercise and what it's taught you about classical music and Gen Z? Yes. And so it's very similar to my exercise with the music history students. What the goal of the opera section is to eventually help non-music majors feel comfortable talking about Porgy and Bess and Trumbled Island. Those are the two operas that we discuss. Before we get there, I want first to understand their conceptions of opera. So I ask them, what do you think about when you hear the word opera? There's hesitancy about opera. It's often not in English. The tickets are very expensive. So, you know, the typical barriers that we would assume for our Gen Z students. And then after that, the following week, I break them up into groups and I have them design their own operas. But the goal being that they pitch it to a fictitious board of trustees, which is made up of, you know, four or five students of their peers. And this is for them to have some sort of buy-in. And it also tells me as their professor and, and as a performer, the stories that matter to them, the music that they want to hear. Because I ask them lots of questions. What's the story? Who are the characters? What's the music? What's the marketing? You know, who were you trying to attract? And really interesting conversations come up, particularly around access and around the music itself. You know, they want to hear music of their time, the music that they're listening to, and they want to be able to go with their friends. So it's it teaches me a lot, and it varies even year to year. It's just been I thank my students constantly for teaching me, you know, how to stay relevant and and speak to as many different audiences as a performer. You know, it seems like it's a big challenge because one of the things that sort of distinguishes classical music is the fact that we think of it as timeless. We think of it as music that has been so well-crafted that it will stand the test of time. And yet you're trying to teach this to students who want to hear their own music. (laughs) So how do you teach this music that is centuries old and that to them maybe doesn't feel relevant? Sure. The whole class, the semester itself, is I'm asking my students to look at different art forms in New York City and focusing on the neighborhood of Harlem and, you know, its surroundings. And so I have them begin the semester by going up to different sub-neighborhoods of Harlem, talking to the people, so that they, once we get into the history of the Harlem Renaissance and, you know, such historical works as Porgy and Bess and Troubled Island, 
they can begin to see that there might be some connections, right? That's the beautiful thing is that music that's written 300 years ago still speak to us. Okay, why is that? And it's emotional content. That's what it's all about. You know, we're constantly moving between the present and the past and looking for ways, the multiple ways in which there are connections between past and present. People may not recognize the name Troubled Island. Porgy and Bess, I think it was premiered in the mid-1930s by Gershwin, of course. Troubled Island is an opera my grandfather, William Grant, still wrote with Langston Hughes based on a play Langston Hughes wrote, and that was premiered in 1949 based on the story of the revolution in Haiti. This is a really good point to talk about, say, Porgy and Bess, because (laughs) I want to talk about tokenizing and othering. Mm. How do you teach these things to people who don't belong to those communities and have them write papers about them and analyze them without crossing that line? It's tricky. And, but that's part of the learning process, right? We're going to have different opinions about things uh, because these are non-majors and this is, these are freshman students in their first semesters. We're not looking very closely at the music. We focus more on reception history. So for example, why Porgy and Bess is still part of the standard repertoire and what happened with Troubled Island after its premiere. I just go back to that first assignment where I had them go to Harlem and talk to the people there. It's about connections. There are more things that connect us than divide us. I believe that wholeheartedly, and that's where I'm coming from when I teach works like this. Ashley Jackson, harpist, Hunter College professor, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Celeste. We turn next to yet another celebrated musician, this time from the world of jazz. With eight Grammys under his belt, Christian McBride is a legendary bassist, composer, and band leader. He's also passionate about bringing jazz music to the public and bringing up the next generation of jazz musicians. He joins us to discuss what classical music can tell us about jazz and what's possible for BIPOC representation in music now and the future. Always a pleasure to talk with you, Christian. Always a pleasure, Celeste. Montclair is not the same without you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that's true. It's quieter. (laughs) I mean, most people know you for jazz, of course, but you have played in every possible genre I can think of, um, including lots of classical music. Um, And of course, you attended um, Juilliard. Can Can we start by kind of talking about first... What jazz and classical have in common? And then we kind of kind of talk about what separates them. There's so many things that um, what I would say American classical music and European classical music have in common. Uh, someone asked Joe Zawinul, the late, great Joe Zawinul, Austrian composer and pianist, keyboardist, co-founder of Weather Report, the same question because... You know, he grew up in Vienna, so his background was, you know, what we're taught uh, about the history of classical music. But he also loved Duke Ellington. He also loved Fats Waller and Art Tatum. And uh, he says that improvisation is composing on the spot. And composing is improvisation slowed way down. <laughs> and so one of the, one of the things that, uh, you know, right from the bat, 
when you're composing a piece, you're still improvising. You're still making something up. You're just slowing it down so you can write it down. But when you're improvising, that process is not written down. It's just coming to you as it comes. And uh, that's one of the first things that I can think of. But I can also draw a parallel to when jazz started to make a turn toward more expansive harmonies. This started happening in the 40s and, and early 50s. There were a lot of jazz musicians like Bud Powell, Thelonious Monk, the late Elmo Hope, who were really paying close attention to people like Bartok and Ravel and Stravinsky. And they were bringing those sorts of harmonies to the African-American rhythm of jazz. So there's so many parallels between the two. That's just a couple that I can think of off the top of my head. And there's so much about the structure of music and the harmonies of music that remain the same regardless of what genre Absolutely. you're playing with the principles. So you grew up in Philadelphia, and I wonder, how much do you think it matters where you grow up? How much does place matter? It matters a lot because I feel very lucky to have grown up in a city like Philadelphia, which is so rich in its history and its tradition of specifically music education. I was very privileged to play in the Philadelphia Youth Orchestra. I played in the Temple University uh, Youth Chamber Orchestra, which actually didn't have real need for a bass, but they put me in it anyway, you know. It said, we, we just think you would be able to bring some serious bottom to, to this orchestra. And, uh, they just had me playing cello parts most of the time, you know, uh, back when I could do that. <laughs> but yes, being in a city like Philadelphia, you had the Philadelphia Orchestra. Um, when I was a little boy, Eugene Ormandy was the musical director. And then for most of my teenage years, up until the time I moved to New York, Sir Ricardo Muti was the musical director. And so I got to grow up listening to Yo-Yo Ma play with the Philadelphia Orchestra. And then I could go hear Philadelphia's best local jazz musicians. In that sense, I was extremely fortunate to grow up in a city like Philadelphia. Now, if you grow up somewhere like, uh, you know, in the middle of Oklahoma, or Arkansas, you're probably not going to get that level of exposure on a daily basis. So where you're from definitely plays a part. You have been exposed to a lot of different kinds of music. How do you go about, I guess, how do you go about learning other people's styles, other styles from other cultures without tokenizing, right. without appropriating? How do you do that? I think of learning different styles of music as, as literally learning different languages. When you're traveling on the road and you go to these different countries, you go to France, you go to Italy, you go to Spain, and you do your best to at least learn a few words to kind of not just help you along your navigation when you're traveling, but to also show the people who live there that you really care about their culture. You're not trying to mock them. You're not trying to make fun of them, but you really want to show them, hey, I'm trying, you know. And when it comes to music, there's so, just like a language, there are so many different languages. There are so many different cultures. It's too easy to say, well, I'll learn what little I need to learn 
to blend it with my culture and then come up with something, you know, quote unquote new. But I would say when you're learning another style of music or you're learning another culture, treat them the way you would want someone to treat you. Because if you got someone from Europe or Asia or South America coming into your neighborhood and they want to learn something about your culture, you want them to take it seriously. You want them to study. You want them to listen. You want them to pay attention. And once they've done that, then you can now start saying, well, hey, you know, what do you do with your culture? You know, now now let's come together. But it's got to be a period where you are serious about learning as much of that culture as much as you possibly can. When I was learning about classical music, my goal was not to say, well, let me just learn as little of this as possible so I can blend it with my jazz and come up with something cool. I really wanted to go as far down the rabbit hole as I could get. So I studied with Neil Courtney, who was the associate principal of the Philadelphia Orchestra. I studied with Luis Biava, who was the conductor of the uh, Temple University Chamber Orchestra. I tried to get with people who I knew were deep in the world of classical music so I could learn about the history, the culture, and then I could step back and look at it and say, okay, this is how this is to be played. You got to be serious about learning all of these different cultures. You know, uh, jazz has a lot of connections with the civil rights movement in the United States, with with organizing. Um, in Black America, do you still see those connections between jazz and those movements today? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that that has never waned. If you go back to Duke Ellington composing Black, Brown, and Beige in the early 1940s, uh, you take that right on up through Sonny Rollins and Max Roach and Gil Scott Heron to Anthony Davis to Mary Lou Williams to Wynton Marcellus to... Billy Childs, and and if I may say so, I've made a little contribution to that, you know. So I think in terms of American classical music, which is known as jazz, it has never really gotten away from the concept of making a sonic portrait and a sonic antidote to the uh, social issues that we face. Christian McBride, award-winning jazz musician, composer, educator... Lots of things. Eight-time Grammy winner. And, and Celeste Headley fan. <laughs> Celeste Headley friend. Thank you so much. That's right. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Celeste Headley, sitting in for Farai Judea. Laura Downs is one of the nation's most celebrated and talented concert pianists and advocates of the classical arts in the 21st century. Her albums routinely grace the top of the Billboard charts, and her music often graces the ears of lucky audience members in attendance at Carnegie Hall in New York or the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. When she was younger, there was a moment when archaeology called out to her. But Laura dreamed of becoming a concert pianist. And today, in some ways, she now does both. 
Her music excavates and lifts up the lost or ignored compositions of classical Black composers like Florence Price, Margaret Bonds, and Scott Joplin. And her NPR video series, Amplify, makes space for Black artists creating today. Joining me to talk about her love of music, her exploration of Black compositional history, and the changes needed to create an equitable classical music industry is renowned classical pianist Lara Downs. Lara, welcome to Our Body Politic. Thank you. It is amazing to be here. So watching you play is an experience in the same way that hearing you play is, especially something like Belief in Spring, Franz Schubert. You have a sense of movement that flows in the same way as, say, the flow of water. One of our producers mentioned that water is an element that can enter any space and it can create incredible change. And I wonder if that quality could apply to you as a black woman, your very adaptability in the classical music space might give you this power to create change. Well, I hope so. And what a beautiful thing to hear. That's a wonderful thought and sort of a metaphor. I mean, it's it's learned so early. And I guess that I learned that at around the same time that I was learning the piano because those were the first two things I learned. I was three years old by the time I was at the keyboard. And I can't describe to you, I think, exactly what parts of me knew initially that it was a space I had to infiltrate. But, you know, it's on so many levels. I always bring up this picture that's kind of embedded in my memory of practicing the piano or having my piano lessons in studios where the walls were covered with these portraits of dead, white, bearded, Germanic men. So that that relationship with those faces was there from the beginning. And clearly, I was not included in that company. So my love of the music and my touch on the keyboard and my ears, my creativity was bringing me into that space. But there was a message from the beginning. You're going to have to find your way. And yes, fluidity and yes, flexibility and yes, adaptability. And, you know, just be how and what you can be in this space. I mean, you've talked about this, that the music you were playing did not contain your story. And yet... It had the power to move you so deeply that it has not only become your life's work, but it has kept you for decades since. That seems to be two pieces that are kind of hard to hold in my head at the same time. Well, it didn't contain one part of my story. We all have many stories. I mean, for me, the music contained very important parts of my story. For example, loss which was a big part of my story from, you know, sadly, an early age. I think I connected with the deep humanity in the music. I didn't care that Beethoven was a genius. I didn't care about the history, you know, the the history of his world and his time. What I cared about was what I sensed in that music of him as a man and his sadness, his grief, his rage his ability to channel those things into something so beautiful. That's where I connected. That's where I 
con- continue to connect. And, you know, through all of my explorations of music that do reflect other parts of my identity, the music of Schumann and, you know, all of the composers whose music has lasted and moves us as deeply as it does because of that, because of the core human essence in it. The genius, in some ways, of some of these composers is in their ability to create on a level that transcends centuries, right? That can then move you, you know, right? That can speak to you regardless of what language you speak, regardless of what age you are. And this is something that you have been trying to use to reach young people, in a way Mm -hmm. that it shows them that they too can have that sort of basic place in classical music. It speaks to people on a very, very human level. Can you tell me a little bit about how you do that? It's a process of stripping away artificial constructs that we've put in the way, (laughs) that get in the way, (laughs) of people just hearing and feeling this music. I mean, I think that for the longest time now, the education piece of classical music has been so focused on great man, great genius, you know, marble bust on (laughs) shelf, all of these things that are old and dusty and immediately can just turn you away, deflect you from the essence of the music. So it's really stripping that away. It's listen for the love, listen for the pain, and then finding the points of connection, which again, of course, we all have because one human life is not that different from another. We experience the same things in our lifespan. And I think I have a real desire to find those points of connection because you can build on them. You know, the more I think about it, finding this mission, this job to do, I think is probably what's kept me at it for so long and, you know, so strongly. Because you start performing and you love having an audience in the room with you that is a knowledgeable audience that is there because they want to be and they can afford the ticket price and they can have an informed, educated conversation with you about the music you've played. But I remember the first times that I stepped outside of that space and I'm a baby pianist at this point and I'm doing little concerts wherever they'll have me. And there was this super tangential thing that was called an outreach. I did not understand what we were doing. Why am I going into this school? Why am I going to this school gym and playing this broken piano for these kids who are restless? But then the moment that I found the the seed of a connection with those kids and I found the words I could speak and the way I could present the music that would turn on the lights for them that would draw them in, I was like, oh, this is actually why I'm here in the first place. This is why I was in the fancy room. (laughs) So I can be in this room. Because to create this connection, to create this new landscape of understanding and awareness, to me was was exhilarating and beautiful. I mean, I got to say, towards the end of my grandfather's life, when he had been sort of cruelly rejected by the classical music world... (laughs) He ended up going into schools and teaching mm-hmm. this young school audience because he said, these kids, they don't care what color I am. <laughs> mm-hmm. They just love mm-hmm. what I'm bringing to them. You have been doing a lot of work in Detroit. Tell me about an, an experience you've had with the young people mm-hmm. in Detroit that has stuck with you. <laughs> One of the best of all these years. So this is now two years ago, I guess, just when orchestras were coming back. And I was in Detroit playing with the orchestra, the Florence Price Concerto 
which is a piece I play a lot. I don't think that they had done it before on a main stage concert, so it was kind of a big deal. And it was just wonderful to be back and be back with orchestras and in that beautiful hall in Detroit. We were coming out of the pandemic, so they were able to bring kids back into the hall. The first school concerts they had done since 2020. And so they bust in all these kids and it's Detroit and they were mostly all black and brown kids. And we had decided that I would play the concerto and we divided it up into its three sections and I introduced each one. And it was just really wonderful. I mean, I think the kids were excited to be there. They were excited to be, you know, somewhere, anywhere. And I was able to tell stories about Florence Price and her life and her place in this history. I could tell, you know, I was pulling them in quickly. But when we got to the last section, the last section of that piece is a Juba dance. And I explained to them, here's this woman 100 years ago with absolutely no entry into this space that she wants so badly to belong in. And, you know, she's sending her scores to the Boston Symphony and Chicago and everywhere. She wants to be heard on these great stages. And she is beautifully trained. She's gone to the New England Conservatory. She can write however she wants. She could write your perfect post-romantic Dvorak-informed symphony. But what does she do? She chooses to write a Juba dance. And so what she's saying is, I want to enter this space and I want to bring my ancestors with me. I want to bring my story with me, my true self with me. And by saying that, she's saying, you're telling me I don't belong here. I do. This story is important. And I said this to the kids and I said, we all belong here. All of our stories are important. And there was this big round of applause and it was just a beautiful end to the concert. And then I went back to my dressing room and that's when it hit me that for those kids to enter into this iconic American arts space for the first time. And not to hear Peter and the Wolf, and I love Peter and the Wolf, but not to hear something that does not on its face represent them, but instead to be welcomed in as part of a living history. This changes now their future as it relates to the arts, to our American culture, to our American history, to where they think they have entry. And I just sat there for a minute and absorbed the magnitude of that. Let's talk about Florence Price a little more. This is a name that is being heard more and more, thank goodness, Mm -hmm. but that's largely owing to academics who have been so insistent that people say it more, and artists like you and Althea Waits and other pianists and musicians who have insisted that this music needs to be heard. Tell us about Florence Price and why we have not heard her music. And if people haven't heard her music... Start with the Juba, because if you want to talk about bringing Black Joy into a concert hall, mm-hmm. you know, that is a great piece That's of music. Right. Yeah. But That's tell right. us about her. I mean, fascinating woman, born in Little Rock, migrated north to Chicago, part of the migration, and really made herself a presence there. You know, it was such a time, Chicago in the 30s. There was a whole world of art and music to be part of as a Black woman, as a Black artist. And she did everything that one could do in that space, and she wanted more. She sort of claimed her place in the history books because she won this composition competition in Chicago called the Wanamaker Competition. And her prize, along with a cash prize, her symphony in E minor was played by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And that was the first time that music by a Black woman had been played by one of our major orchestras. And, you know, that sounds like the happy ending to a story, but it it wasn't. She, she wasn't able to achieve what she wanted to in her lifetime. And then after she died in 1953, well, tastes were changing, right? The classical music world was moving quickly away from this sort of populist, 
Melody. Friendly. <laughs> Melody. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Moving into serialism and what frankly was an academic and very white style, which was very controlled by white men. And there wasn't any space for this, this fusion of American sounds that had been popular in the 30s and had been promoted ever since Dvorak came to America in the late 1800s and said, hey, people, this is what Black music is American music. music. Yes, yes. Yeah. And that's, that was really the ending of that chapter, very sadly for very many people, including your grandfather. So when she died, a large part of the reason that her music was forgotten was that her music was lost. Many of her manuscripts were left behind in a house in St. Anne, Illinois, tiny little village in Illinois, in a house, a house that had been her summer home. And it wasn't until 2009 that a young couple bought the house to renovate it and discovered these boxes of manuscripts in an attic. And when I say an attic, I mean an attic without a roof, you know, open to the elements, just full of water damage and rodents and everything else. And they could and have thrown the, it away. I they mean, could. I guarantee you they had a dumpster and they did not put those boxes in the dumpster. And that to me is the greatest miracle of all. I know. They had the, I think about right? that all the time. Right. Yeah. Different couple, different day. That music is gone. So those boxes were taken down to the University of Arkansas. Now, somehow, you know, some of her music had been published in her lifetime. And so I had come across one piece of hers way back. I mean, in the early 2000s, in an anthology, and I always talk about this. This was an anthology I found in a library of piano music by Black women composers. It's like 12 pieces of music in the book, <laughs> not a big book. But I, I just fell in love with this fantasy by Florence Price and started playing it right away. And these were early days for me of exploring American music and what I knew about it and what I didn't know about it. So that was, I mean, that was my gateway drug, was that one piece by Florence Price. Is that the Fantasy Negre? Yeah, the first one, yes. And I mean, I remember so well the first time I played that for an audience and heard truly the gasps of recognition, of delight, of just, you know, this is something new, but it's not new. This is something I recognize. Your latest album, Love at Last, is full of optimism. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, if you're ever in a bad mood, that is the right album to put on. Oh, thank you. Is it a reflection of sort of your inner monologue? (laughs) Do you feel more optimism (laughs) about the work that you've been doing? Uh, I mean, because this has been your, as you say, determined goal to diversify this industry, to diversify this music throughout your career. Do you Mm -hmm. feel more hope? I have to say that I do. To finally see the fruits of your labors. And also to know, I think at this point, it makes me happy and hopeful to know that most of what I'm doing won't really bear fruit till long after I'm gone. And that's okay. That's really okay. There's so much to do. And the ways that I see 
whatever little, you know, whatever little contribution I'm making, the way that I see the effects of that just makes me determined, again, that word, to to do more. Whether that's a conversation, as I have more and more often now with young musicians of color, then I realize, oh, they've been watching. Like all these years, they've been watching. And, you know, what I'm doing, my presence here is giving them courage and is giving them a feeling that I never had at their age of being part of something, of seeing someone ahead of them, of having someone they can they can reach out to as a mentor, gate opener, whatever, all the things that we can be. That in itself, that's a good reason to get up in the morning. Laura Downs, a celebrated pianist, host of NPR's Amplify. Thank you so much. It's always a joy. Oh, I love talking to you. Thank you so much, Celeste. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on social media at Our Body Politic. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms and Rococo Punch. I'm today's host, Celeste Headley. For I, Chidea, Nina Spensley, and Shanta Covington are executive producers. Emily J. Daly is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister is our booking producer. Monica Morales-Garcia is our fact checker and producer. Natina Bean and Emily Ho are our associate producers. This episode was produced by Monica Morales-Garcia, Andrea Aswahe, and Morgan Givens. It was engineered by Mike Garth. This program is produced with support from the Luce Foundation, Open Society Foundation, Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harness Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, the Pop Culture Collaborative, and from generous contributions from listeners like you. <laughs>